All right, open your Bibles this morning to Esther. How many have been joining the series Esther? Raise your hand if you have. If you haven't, just smile anyway. I've been really enjoying studying it. It's been a real blessing as I went through it. So uh, Esther chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read through it, comment on it, and then make applications. Does that seem a little loud? A little loud to you? All right. Esther chapter 3. Let's just jump into this because we want to get to Eaton and uh, I have a time frame that I gave myself and I want to try to stick with that. All right. Gives me a half an hour. All right. Look at verse 1. Sometime after King Xerxes promoted, or sometime after King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Ham. I'm just going to say Ham. All right. Everybody all right with that? Son of Ham, Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. Now, notice it says, some time after. Now, that's kind of, if we, if we go back to chapter 1, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there was four years. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3, there is five years. So it's not like just a, a few weeks or something like that. It was actually five years. Now, Haman just pops up out of the blue, all right? We, we haven't heard anything from him, but there's five years between the two chapters. But we have King Xerxes, all right, or King Xerxes, as we talked about uh, a couple of weeks now. He started the scene in chapter one by having a big party. How long was the party? Yeah, six, six months and seven days of a party, and after three days, he was high in spirits. Basically, he was drunk, right? He was drunk, and he made some bad decisions, and being drunk, he made some bad decisions. He ended up getting angry at his wife and cast her out, Vashti, and then chapter two, he chose a new queen, and that was Esther, and that brings us right here. Fantastic story up to this point. But all of a sudden, Haman pops on the scene, nowhere in sight, five years after Queen Esther was put on the throne as queen. And then it says this. He was the most powerful official in the empire. Verse 2, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whoever passed by. Now, for, the, for so the king had commanded them to bow. So... Everywhere Haman went when he was in his Mustang going down the street, everybody by the command of the king would bow down and show respect or worship Haman. All right, they all bowed down. Except for, notice what it says, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show respect. Now again, Mordecai, don't forget who he is. He is the cousin of Esther. His Esther's cousin who adopted him or adopted her as his own daughter and basically raised her because her parents had died in Persia. All right. And so now all of a sudden, everybody's bowing down except this one man. Understand that that's important. One man refuses to bow down. Look at verse three. Then the palace officials at the king's gate began to ask Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? Now, it's not why are you bowing down. 
Why are you disobeying the king's command? Because this is the king that commanded them to everybody bow down. Verse 4. They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply to the orders. In other words, again, they come to him every day just questioning what's going on. How come you're not obeying? How come you're not bowing down? And then he tells us why. But he refused to comply. So they spoke to Haman about this to see what he would see whether he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. Now, here we have the reason why he wouldn't bow down, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. So he refused to bow down because he was a Jew. And the Jews had the commandment, no other gods before the Lord. So this one man refused to worship and bow down before this one man who King Xerxes has placed him in that position. Verse 5. Then Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down and show respect. All right, so how many would be bothered with this? The king gives you this position, right? The entire empire bows down to you. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome, right? Except for one man. Now, now think about this. One person refuses, everybody else is, but notice where his focus and his attention goes. It says, he was filled with rage. The word filled means he was controlled. I mean, he was consumed with rage and anger because one person refused. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? How That was his focus. He's the, he's, the, he's the big dog. I mean, he's it. Outside of King Xerxes, he's it. Everybody obeys him. Everybody does what he wants, except one man refused, and that made him so angry. Then he begins, listen very carefully, he begins a plot based on one man that leads to his destruction. Now think about that. Isn't that kind of us sometimes? Just a small application. Sometimes things are going fantastic for us. Fantastic. But one thing. One thing. And where does our focus go? I know preachers are like this all the time. They have 3,000 people that love them and, and appreciate them. But there's one family that's disgruntled. A preacher will only focus on that one family. Rather than understanding, he has a whole flock to pastor and take care of and feed. He's consumed with that one family. And we get, get consumed with one problem. And it takes our attention away from the things that we need to be doing. But notice what it says. He learned of Mordecai, this is verse 6, of Mordecai's nationality, and he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews. <laughs> Mordecai was a Jew. That's why he wouldn't bow down. So instead of going out and getting Mordecai, he decides that all the Jews that were in Xerxes' empire, they were going to pay for what Haman did. Now, that really wasn't the reason. Okay? Haman's, his history tells us that his nationality goes back to the Malachites. Who's the Malachites? Oh, they're the ones that when the Jews went into the promised land, they were to wipe them out, which they did accept the king. 
And the king lived with the Jews. And then, of course, from them came the Agagites. That's a weird name, isn't it? It's a weird word. It makes it sound like he's angry. The Agagites are angry. Agagite. Say it with me. Agagite. Does that sound weird? Agagite. <laughs> You're just shocked that I can say it, aren't you? All right. So here he's going after all the Jews. Now, let me tell the story from here. Okay. So he decides, I'm going to go after all the Jews and wipe them out. So he goes to the king and convinces the king to let him do what he wants to do. And the king gave him the ring and said, here's my ring. Go do what you need to do. And, and, and Haman said, well, it's going to cost about 10,000 bags of silver to do this. The king said, here you go. Go do it. So then he cast lots to decide when he's going to do it. It was the year from that point that the lots fell on. So a year from that, March 7, he would wipe out all the Jews on one single day. So he puts his plan in action. That's kind of confusing, all right? I mean, there's a lot of people that have friends that are Jews. They, they intermarried and they intermingled with all these people and worked with them. They're going to wipe out their friends. So this is what Haman decided. It's like the Dark Ages. Listen very carefully. In the Dark Ages, if you killed a Christian, you would get their properties, you would get their monies. That's what, that's what Haman decided. If you kill a Jew, you get their properties, you get their money, and you get their everything. If you kill the Jews, you get it. But if you sit back and do nothing, you don't get anything. You see what's going on? He made sure that their death was signed. Their death certificate was done. Because everybody wants to better themselves. And so then they rise to the top. Now, I want you to go to chapter 4. And I don't have it on the screen. But chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Now, remember who Mordecai is. He's a Jew. Esther's adopted father. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying aloud and a bitter wail. Okay, so he was really moved and touched by this. Verse 2. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while they were wearing these burlap clothes and, and they were mourning. Verse 3 talks about that he began fasting and he began praying, asking God, there's a year here, God, I need you to move and somehow stop this event from taking place. Okay? Now, over the next time that we have, we've got about 15 minutes, I want to make application to this. Okay? There's some fantastic applications here. Mordecai is just like King Xerxes, except worse. And that's probably why he promoted him. Remember back, who saved the king's life in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2? Mordecai. Did Mordecai get a promotion? No. He still opened and shut the gate. But all of a sudden, this Haman, he is the one that's promoted within the system. Just like the king. He had that personality. Look at your notes there. Let's go to first. First application is this. Evil is a reality, all right? And you notice it says, face the reality of evil. Evil is present. Before September 11, 2001, and listen to this, before September 11, 2001, we had 
our counter-terrorist agency knew of a group called Al-Qaeda. They knew who their leader was. They knew where he was. They knew where his training camp was. They knew how to reach out and wipe them out if they chose to. But they had other high priorities, international and domestic, that they felt were pressing. So they only assigned a few of their people to Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. Now, after that, of course, we know the rest of the story, amen? We didn't really look at them as that big of a threat. And then, of course, we know what happened. Foresight is a little fuzzy. Okay, foresight is usually 2040 or worse. Not the facts, the, the details aren't that clear. Hindsight, on the other word, is 2020 or better. Because pain and turmoil acts as a window cleaner and cleans the window, and you can see the very details of what Al-Qaeda and bin Laden was trying to do. And they learned a couple of big things from that. All right? They learned a couple of big things, and it's on your notes. When all you have is fuzzy foresight, you must focus your attention and resources on the enemy who wants your head on a platter. That's what they learned. So that was a, that's a pretty big lesson. Probably the biggest lesson they learned was the attitude of sort of. They sort of believed that bin Laden was a real threat. They sort of believed that Al-Qaeda was capable of pulling off such an attack on America. They sort of believed that. They sort of believed that they had some people in America that were his trainees and that was going to carry out some. They sort of believed that. Well, that sort of belief led to a sort of response, which led to a lot of people being killed because of that sort of belief, that sort of attitude. Now, I want to apply that to us today. Satan unequivocally wants you dead. Satan does. There's this target on your back. As a believer, we know that Jesus said that Satan, this is, this is his goal, steal, kill, and what? Destroy. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, do you have this one? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says this. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls like a lion, ready to, I mean, he's seeking whom he may devour. That's your enemy, okay? Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, you can write that down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, you really need to study that. It says, Satan 
is the ones that, he's the one that blinds the eyes of them that believe not, so that they can't see the gospel and be saved. Okay? This is the pink elephant in the church today. The gigantic pink elephant that nobody wants to talk about. Because if you sort of believe that the enemy is out to destroy you, then you can halfway live comfortable. <laughs> but with the belief that Satan wants to kill you, your kids, your family, your friends, and destroy you, at least make you no effect in the kingdom of God, neutralize you, that's, that's uncomfortable. Isn't it? I mean, to believe that Satan is out to destroy you and you've got to be alert and aware, it's, it's easier to live in denial, in fantasy, because it's so much comfortable there. It's much more comfortable in fantasy land than reality. It's so much more comfortable to live in this sort of believing the book. Can I hear an amen? It, it is, because, I mean, who wants to think about somebody trying to destroy you all the time? Who? Who wants to be alert all the time? Man, I want to relax. I want to go home, grab my dinner, sit on my chair that goes back, amen, and hit the TV, and I'm off in entertainment world. How many like that? You like to unwind. Raise your hand. All right. I mean, all of us, we want that me time, that unwind time. But what happens is this. Listen very carefully. When you live in that sort of attitude about the enemy, you're going to have an encounter like 9-11. It's guaranteed that you're going to encounter Satan and have your own 9-11 if you're not alert because he is out to destroy, still kill and destroy. He's like that roaring lion ready to pounce on anybody that's not alert. That's why he says stay alert. So we have to. We have to be alert for what he is trying to do. All right? Secondly, look at your notes there. All right? Another thing we need to do is gather intel, if you will. Satan has been watching film on each and every one of us, okay? Just as Haman had these people reporting to him who was not bowing down. Satan and his demons have been watching film, and he is, listen, relentless. He doesn't rest. In Luke chapter 4, we have a story where Jesus fasts 40 days and 40 nights. Anybody ever done that before? <laughs> I fasted three days. That's enough. <laughs> okay, so, so fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Satan came to him and did battle, trying to bring him down. Three attacks on Jesus. And the Bible says he whooped him soundly. Jesus took the devil to the woodshed and whooped him. Okay? Great victory there. Listen to chapter 4, verse 13. This was after the, the sound beating says this, when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, okay, he got whooped, 
he left him until the next what opportunity came. I mean, that's crazy. The guy doesn't give up. And when we sort of believe that Satan is there, and we sort of believe he wants to destroy us, he's coming back eventually and going to try to take us down. Why? Because he's relentless. He doesn't rest. And he's relentless. He's, he's an opportunist. He looks for that opportunity. Another portion of Scripture. As we gather intel, he's relentless, doesn't quit, and he's going to come back. If somehow you defeat him one time, he's going to come back when you least expect it. Okay? I mean, Esther was living high. Mordecai was, my, my daughter, so to speak, is queen. And when they least expected it, here comes Haman. Bam! It's powerful. Another scripture, gathering intel, is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, 9, 10, 11. Look what it says. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you, were, you would fully comply with my instructions. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church to see if they were listening to what he had to say. Now listen to this. When you forgive this man, he's talking about a man that's in sin, I forgave him too. All right? And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. He's talking about forgiveness here. If the church forgave him, Paul says, I forgive him, and of course Christ forgive him. So that Satan, listen to this, will not outsmart us, for we are familiar, notice what it says, with his schemes. What's he talking about? Satan, he has certain things that he strives to do. And one of the main things he he strives to do is to get the church to look at that one person over here that doesn't bow. What I mean by that is this. He tries to get the church focused on the one person that they're offended with, that didn't smile at them, or disagrees with them, or is upset with them. Okay? This is what happens in the church. This is what happens today. Is we, we get so focused on the one person that doesn't do ex- things exactly like I would do or doesn't believe exactly, or they didn't smile at me, or they, did, they, they just don't appreciate me. And it gets us to focus on ourselves and gets offended. That's, that's what it talks about. That's Satan's work today, to get us all riled up and to be offended. Because when he gets the church offended, they no longer are focusing on God on his purpose for their lives, but they're focused on what? Me. This is, this, is, this is the pink elephant in the room. And we sort of believe he's there, and he gets us. Every time you get offended, every time somebody gets offended in the church at you, it's Satan behind the scenes because this is his goal. I, I could go story after story after story of people in the church that got offended and left over somebody else in the church. It happens all the time. 
And rather than the believer understanding, oh, this is just Satan trying to get me to, to be offended and to be upset with the church and have disunity and leave, instead of identifying Satan, he looks at it, it's the other person. And I can't be around. I got to leave. Give me an example. We had a family here several years ago, a few years ago, that um, got offended. I went after them, brought them back. Met with them, I I think, three to five times as they weren't faithful, and I knew something was wrong. So I met with them, tried to deal with the issue and get it resolved. Finally, they said it was fine, but they still didn't come. And so, so they were gone like a month. And all of a sudden, they call me, don't you care? So first they were offended with other people, but all of a sudden, because they're offended with other people, and I went to them several times, but I hadn't gone like a month, now they're offended with me. You see that? It doesn't stop. Rather than identifying this, who really is causing all this, and their exper- they experienced the 9-11 in their life. They lost their church, their church family. Because of this this attack by the enemy. Rather than identifying it on who it was, they were devastated with what they thought where everybody was against them. So what we got to do is we've got to move. How am I doing on time? Perfect. We've got to move from sort of to definitely we got to move from sort of believe to definitely believe sort of to believe or sort of to definitely sort of to definitely get that in your brain sort of definitely say it with me church ready here we go sort of definitely that was lame ready here we go sort of definitely a little better sort of there you go amen Get that in our heads because we've got to move from sort of to definitely believe that the enemy is trying to take us down. And so when we see these things happen, we know instantly that Satan is trying to get me offended at my brother. Satan is trying to get my brother or my sister offended at me. We've got to get to that place where we understand he's behind the scenes and he's working it out to destroy us so that we will experience a 9-11 attack and many lives are destroyed. When we get to definitely, we will shut down Satan's attacks, his terrorist attacks in our life, in the life of the people close to us, in the lives of the people in the church, and in the world, if we as a church recognize what he's doing. Every single time, this is Satan at work in our lives. And as we look at the scripture, just in closing, a couple of scriptures. Now, Mordecai did the right thing. Okay? Instantly, he grabbed a hold of God's word. He used the intel that God had given him. We have the intel on Satan right here. We know what to do to shut down Haman and his tactics to destroy us. It's right here. Okay? And one of the things to do is to, again, believe that this offensing 
this offending is from the enemy. Let's go to Psalms 119-165. Okay? Those who love your word have great peace. When we get to the place where we love the word of God and it is, it is, you know, the authority for everything we believe is the authority for what we practice and we strive to make application like we're doing today to Esther chapter 3. We're striving to make application. We love this book. We have great peace. But here's the great, great thing. And then King James says this, and nothing shall offend thee. That's what it says. Nothing shall offend thee. In other words, because you love the book and you understand, basically, you know what it says because you love it so much and you've read it and you're into it. You know Satan's tactics and you know what he's up against. So I'm not going to let Satan get the victory. I'm not going to stumble. I'm not going to be offended. And that's what Mordecai did. All right. Secondly, another verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Now, of course, this is, um, we're human, but we do not, wage war as humans do we use god's mighty weapons that's what haman did okay he went to prayer not worldly weapons to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments okay we bring down every stronghold we can go listen if we understand that this is a spiritual warfare going on like like mordecai and we'll talk about it next week. He got on his knees and he fasted and prayed continually. Got the other Jews to fast and pray. It literally brought down Haman's schemes. You and I can go to the Lord and we can bring down those strongholds in our lives and in the lives around us by simply going to the Lord and praying. Because this is what we do. When we sort of believe these problems that we have in our lives, We chalk them up to natural problems with natural solutions. We have natural problems. Things happen to us all the time. And we need some natural solutions to deal with it. And the whole time, what's happening is we're taking out our finger pistols and we're firing back at Satan with his massive warships that are pointed right at us and firing those big old weapons at us. We got our finger pistols and our booger bazookas out. It It does no good because we're thinking these are just natural causes, natural problems that just happen every day rather than chalking them up as the enemy trying to take us down. Can I hear an amen? He's behind the scenes and he's doing all this. Things down. And we think, oh, it's just natural problems and we're just going to solve it naturally. Well, hey, Mordecai said, no way. This is too serious. And he goes to prayer and he prays for months. And he gets all the Jews to pray with him. And we're going to find out to get Esther. She fasts and she prays. And God brings down that stronghold that Haman had over the entire kingdom. So we need to believe what the book says. We need to pray. Thirdly, Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So the Father has given Jesus all this authority. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples 
to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he goes, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end, verse 20. So it's just, it's, it's simple. What, what Malachi did is he just simply believed what the, the Lord said. He went to prayer, and then he made, he literally put feet to his prayers. He got all the rest of the Christians to join with him to battle. And he fasted, and he prayed, he ripped his clothes off, in sackcloth and ashes. What we have to do is we have to apply, make application. But again, it's from moving to sort of to definitely. And when you move from there to there, then when you, when you, believe, when you believe that Satan is working against you and you're alert and you understand he's going to come back eventually, what happens is that promotes action. And then you understand that you could go forward with the authority of God on your side. You can have the book. It literally can bind the spiritual things that are attacking us. It can take down Satan's schemes and attacks. Because if you don't, and you still believe, ah, these things are all just natural, no big deal, boom. When you least expect it, expect it. It's coming. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for chapter 3 and the book of Esther. Thank you for giving us this live, literal live story, not a movie, not some fiction. This is literally a man and a woman and a nation and a kingdom that's trying to take out the Jews, your people. Father, we pray that the application today that we would see that Satan is trying to destroy your kingdom here on earth, your children, by putting us in a sleeplessness, a sleepiness, a, a, a sort of belief, because it's really comfortable, Lord. Lord, our kids are too important. Our family, our church, Father, it's too important just to sit around and just halfway believe. We have to engage the enemy. We have to believe your book. We have to believe your promises. And I pray you'd help us to make application this morning to this. As we go home and we we celebrate Thanksgiving, may we be constantly praying, constantly alert, so that we don't experience that 9-11 in our lives, in our family, in our church, in our city. God, help us to be alert and help us to understand that Satan is trying to keep those that are not saved, keeping them blind. And one of the big ways he does it is keeping us silent, keeping us from understanding we're all in this together. This is a family effort. And Father, we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. Now, Father, we also pray that as we gather today, and we celebrate thanksgiving together, that, Lord, that you would help us to be thankful to you for all that you have done for us, the many blessings. And may this be a great week with our family and our friends and celebrating uh, our family, celebrating our nation, and most of all, celebrating our relationship with you, Lord. So bless this food as we partake. Bless our fellowship, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.